Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. It's interesting that we were very recently in the grand age of the X-Men solo title, where it seemed like everyone was getting a solo series. Nowadays, the X-Men seem to be limited to, well, just white guys getting solo books again. But we're here to talk about the ones they gave us. That makes this This Is X. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And I'm Jonah. We hope you survived this experience, unlike Tark, Brack, and Kron and all their cyborg misfit buddies. Yeah, the Island of Misfit Space Knights had a bad day, but a better day for us comes today, because once again, we have rocking the guest spot, none other than the amazing Josh, Mr. Asleep at the Wheel. Hey, thanks for having me back. We had you on last Wolverine, so it only made sense that you're back for this Wolverine. Now, here's the thing, though. Saying this Wolverine, that Wolverine, and talking about the fact that there used to be more female-led solo titles kind of brought me to something I've been thinking about a lot lately. While Logan was dead, the term Wolverine and Logan became two very different things. We had the Logan Legacy and the Logan Code in the forms of other people's reactions to his death, but at the same time, we had the best Wolverine, Laura, take on the mantle of Wolverine. Now, I am thoroughly of the mindset that Steve Rogers no longer needs to be Captain America. He should just be Super Soldier or Captain Rogers. He doesn't need to brand as Captain America going forward. At that same time, I'm also of the mindset that Wolverine could be Logan. For my money, renaming Laura Wolverine was one of the best ideas the company's ever had. There's a Kevin Smith Green Arrow issue. I think it's near the end of his run, like after they finished fighting Onomatopoeia, where it's Ollie and Connor Hawk, and the news anchor's like, well, but like there's two Green Arrow, so like what do we call you? Like are you Green Arrow Jr., or are you going to be like Blue Arrow now? Or Ollie's like, there's a thousand Green Lanterns flying around, and you guys have no problem with that. Like you can figure out how to call two people Green Arrow. Like, there's no reason why Laura can't be Wolverine right now. She doesn't have to go back to X-23. She doesn't have to be demoted to anything else. She doesn't have to be, like, she Wolverine or anything. Like, she is Wolverine. Like, she earned that. She keeps it. And you know what? Like, everyone else can deal with the fact that there's two people named Wolverine. Logan would agree with you. Yeah. He truly has made it clear that, to him, Laura is the best person to ever bear his name. And, like, I, uh, if you can't love her, you don't deserve to love him. Ugh! Yes. I want to know, what do you guys think were some of the best renamings that the X-Men have done? I think Kitty Pride's progression through various names from... Ariel, uh, was Ariel first? I think it was Sprite, Ariel, 7-Up, Coke Zero, <laughs> Shadowcat. So Pride's progression from Sprite to Ariel to finally Shadowcat was my my favorite transition for a character. You know, step by step, they got closer to a good name till they finally got one. Exactly. In Kate. 
I thought you said in cake, but then I figured out you meant Kate. And now I really want Kate to do a cake cover album. I just want to hear her sing the the distance. That's that's all I want. I feel like that's in her karaoke repertoire. Yeah, if you're gonna try and lie to me and tell me that Kate Pride doesn't listen to Cake, mm-mm. no, no, no. She went to college in the '90s. And both Rachel and Ileana are her girl in a short skirt and a long jacket. I think a renaming that got a good laugh out of me was when they renamed Gold Balls to Egg, and uh, the joke is actually from Cade. That's not gonna stick. It definitely hasn't. I still think of Gold Balls as Gold Balls, but if I could, uh, if I could just bring a really obscurely named character into the picture here. Uh, nothing to do with renaming, but in our discussion a couple weeks ago about New X-Men Academy X, I couldn't help but go through the yearbook special and look at the, the cast of characters from our, our last uh, question last week, actually. And I came across Rubber Maid, a girl with the ability to turn her skin into rubber, named after a Tupperware. And I think she is my mutant that I want to see resurrected most. <laughs> Give me Tupperware. Yeah, I mean, there are not enough hermetically sealable mutants on Krakoa. And I think, man, do we need to see that remedied? Oh, well, now we're going to have a weird mutant name question someday. That's for fucking sure. <laughs> in, in true Jonah fashion, I can't just have one answer. I have a funny answer and then I have a serious answer. My serious answer is Danny Moonstar. Because Psych is a fine code name, but when she becomes Mirage slash Moonstar, and it's just like, oh, she's she can finally live up to the amazing character that she actually is. Because I feel like she didn't really get a good name starting off with the, the original New Mutants, but having her, you know, go into her own and make her own name, I, I am in love. We stand Annie Moonstar on this podcast, and if you don't. Please reevaluate yourself. Absolutely. This is exclusively for Stanny Moonstars. Stanny Moonstars. But my uh, my joke answer is a character that's often the butt of jokes. Uh, and that's Tabitha Smith. Because yes. she, she had, had so many code names. And they make fun of her so often. Do you, do you know I had a five-minute out loud conversation with myself about not choosing Tabitha Smith because I knew that you'd want her? Oh, so, oh my god. You're so, <laughs> you're so kind. I was really reading new mutants last night which we'll cover in next episode and i just i i kept saying to myself for what must have been five minutes oh god i'd really love firecracker really oh god I'd, oh, time bomb i would really love to choose her oh my god but jonah <laughs> i'm just glad they never got like absurdly sexual because you know in a lot of ways tabby did kind of echo a lot of the sort of gen 13 kind of she really did represent a lot of that danger girl, dark child, kind of 90s, sexy, sort of Rob Liefeld grimace face. So I'm just really glad they never named her anything like Explosive Pussy Pop or anything, because that would have been like a step too far. And they got pretty close with Boom Boom. She the Boom Boom girl. Guys, I have to know then, as Jonah was kind enough to bring up the amazing Tabby, you know, it's not just good renames out there. There are some bad renames out there. Whether it's the appropriation of the term Phoenix for a thousand other properties and products, or it's my personal least favorite, that actually applies to one of my favorite groups of X-Men. I love the Thunderbird line, whether it's James or John, but my actual favorite Thunderbird is Neil Shara. And Neil Shara <laughs> is probably best known from the X-Men Revolution era, and he was actually the impetus character through which Karima was introduced. 
she was the supporting character to Neil Shara. So I love Neil. His powers are cool. I loved his relationship with Betsy. I thought he was a dynamic, interesting, original character. And fucking hot as hell. And we don't have enough Middle Eastern X-Men as a rule. So having an X-Man from India who is central to his culture, you know, it was a great idea. But there was no reason to appropriate the term Thunderbird from Native American culture, which already gets called quote-unquote Indian often enough and apply it to an actual character from India. I just thought that was a little tone down. It's so bad. My least favorite is, and it's probably going to be a common one, I wouldn't be surprised if we all say the same thing, but Prestige. Prestige is just such a bad name, and Rachel deserves uh, And Wasn't she Revenant at one point, too? Like, they've never done her good. She's tried being her mom so many times, and they just, no one seems to know how to just make her Rachel. I'm really excited for Leah to get her hands on her now with X Factor because Leah definitely, when you see her talk about her online, seems to get her in a way that other writers haven't and has ideas for her that are not like, you know, Jean Grey. Jean Light. Yeah. Yes. Um, And so, yeah, like I'm excited for something else, but those names have just all been bad and yeah she she deserves so much better yeah i definitely agree with uh prestige i mean the name is not descriptive at all it i i don't know what kind of hero she's supposed to be when she's using the name prestige i mean yeah i agree with you because there's two definitions to prestige that i can think of one is a great amount of honor that someone's name summons up and i don't think that that's what she's she's not a proud person like that she's not flashy i mean she's flashy and she's proud but outside of the 1980s phoenix identity she does actually like to be a little bit more i'm secretly a firecracker so she wouldn't be like prestige the other term i know prestige to mean is the point at which the switch is done in a magic trick The prestige is the moment at which you've distracted your audience. So I don't think she's a distraction. And I don't think she's meant to be like, look at me and my legacy. I completely agree with both of you. It's a shit name job. And right now, like, is is she the only character who whose pet has a better name than she does? (laughs) Oh, we have to love Amazing Baby. Amazing Baby. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've even had the first Amazing Baby cosplayer on here. So, you know, we stan Amazing Baby in this house. I think my pick for worst renaming is a little bit more of a pick along the lines of divisive renaming. I'm going to choose Apocalypse going by A. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. that what began as a redemption of character has turned into a clunky way of expressing this character's identity now verbally because to call him a well who is a well apocalypse has decades of publication history to him a is something that is intrinsically linked with reading the current books but i don't think it's something that we'll see stick the same way and saban Noor has faded into obscurity i wonder if naming him a was meant to create a balance to xavier being professor x So then he's like High Priest A versus Professor X. And 
so much is about lexicon and vocabulary and language, and I'm down for all of it, but there is something maybe overly simple about, you know, funny symbol, funny symbol, web ding, wing ding, a funny symbol, funny symbol, web ding, wing ding. I think that would be funny symbol, funny symbol, web, ah, can't do it. It's too hard. It's too hard. <laughs> I wanted to be like, um, actually, <laughs> did not, did not work. I know that Maddie said he liked it. I hate the name Egg. I just think it's really bad. I, I, for a character that's meant to have a very serious role, he has a very jokey name, and it just bothers me. Listen, Gold Balls was not better in any side of the imagination, but like, I, I can't do it. It is a little troubling that both of his names are sexual. Like, they're both kind of funny sex puns, like his eggs or his balls. Like, you know, they, they do get called huevos. Like, you know, that's a thing. So it is a little reductive. And also egg just as in, you know, an egg. Um, that wasn't as profound as it sounded in my head. Um, I, th- <laughs> <laughs> I think... I- don't worry. Don't worry. In France, it'll be an oof. Oh, an oof. Um, I think I think what I like about Gold Balls going by egg is more just the joke that they made out of it. I, I, I'm not at all feeling the need to defend my pick, um, but I think that's what's so funny about it. He's ridiculous. His name is Gold Balls, or his name is Egg. His name could be fucking Pancake. I mean, it, it neither of them. <laughs> you know, at least finally he now has a name that's indicative of his powers, although he shoots gold balls out of himself, for Christ's sake. You know, they can't all be pointy sticks coming out of your knuckles. And from pointy knuckle sticks, we are clearly covering Wolverine number five today with writer Benjamin Percy, artist Victor Bogdanovic, color artist Matthew Wilson, letterer VCs Corey Pettit with design by Tom Muller, and cover art by Adam Kubert and Frank Martin. After being incapacitated during a run-in with an anti-mutant trauma support group in the frozen north, Wolverine finds himself encased in a block of ice, his rare type E blood having been siphoned to create blood clocks, devices that allow vampires to temporarily turn into daywalkers. Teaming up with a group of ragtag vamp punks, Logan attempts to track down this faction of the undead before it's too late. And I guess Omega Red was there? This was, for me, a, uh, a little bit more of a charming clunker than the last issue, but still a story that I feel like I've read before. I feel like by bringing vampires into the fold here, we are just going to start rehashing vampire tropes. Something about this issue felt a little bit like the later uh, volumes of 30 Days of Night for me, when Stella was already a vampire hunter, and you start to see a little bit more of the the underground and the day-to-day vampires who don't necessarily exist for the cause. I think that, if nothing else, this issue was styled very nicely, and credit where credit's due to Matthew Wilson for the colors, because the saturation on the, the blue and purple tones really set the stage for what was otherwise five pages of action and i hate to to come in with this because i do feel maybe like (sighs) logan is such a hard character to nail down because he has such an expansive voice and such an expansive concept that he fits in a lot of roles i actually you know i hear you say 30 days of night my brain went to american vampire i thought that if this had been an old west story this could have been right out of that 
kind of anthology series. I am also not a big fan of when the X-Men mix with vampires as a rule. I like the classic Storm Dracula stuff, but I am not a big fan of Victor Gishler's X-Men vampire stuff. Josh, were you reading around the time of the Curse of the Vampires in X-Men? No, I'm I'm grateful that I was not. I am not a big vampire in superhero comics person they it's just not a concept blend that works for me i like vampire stories in general but i think the vampire story works kind of in contrast to humans right where the vampires are more powerful at night but more vulnerable during the day and it kind of balances out the power with humans who are the same at both when you take mutants who are more powerful at all times it just feels like a weird add-in and it's the the gishler curse of the mutant stuff any of the gishler stuff really just is not something that ever worked for me you know one point of continuity that i want to bring up to argue for everybody here because i love nothing better than to be combative is we see in one of the white pages the wolverine blood group system and it breaks down all the types of blood um red blood cells fucose galactose and acetal galactosamine and and acetal glucosamine in case anyone really cared um but all the different blood types and the distribution rates you know one in three people have o positive blood you know one in 15 have o negative wolverine's type e blood is one person in eight billion how do you feel about that knowing that he has at least two biological offspring one one a biological offspring and one a genetic clone you don't think that lauren laura and dokken would share some grouping of the same blood type there's a margin of error in that percentage like they didn't list the margin of error on that stat but um yeah i was thinking that as well well and just knowing some stuff about blood typing it has to do with what's dominant and what's recessive so a blood type manifests in regard to the blood type it's mixed with a blood type can't generate out of nowhere right that is to say that in order for logan to be type e one of his parents had to be type e and be dominant for it or both would have to have been recessive type e presenters so that would mean inherently logan's genetic mutation should include this blood type what well, would be primarily his blood type it would be the blood type that is the the catalyst for the rest of his mutation that would be his prime mutation there it would be a result i overthought this i i'm certified to teach biology in the state of florida i've taught biology and blood types a number of times i promise you i overthought this way too freaking much uh after reading wolverine number five <laughs> At same thing here. I kept because I, I have an unusual blood type, and it's come up a number of times that as somebody AB negative, that's kind of unusual. And so I, you know, know some, and like I just kind of sat here going, okay, so the blood type itself is a mutation. So then theoretically, if the blood type is a mutation, it should be that he is the only person to present it. So while I appreciate the data saying one in eight billion. The reality is it's one in eight billion in a way that really can't be quantified. This is a one of a kind outlier. Unless someone in the past had this E-type blood too and Logan inherited it. This is an interesting evolution of mutant mythos. The idea that, you know, and I love you saying that the blood type is what results in everything else that he can, because I'm going to get down to a thing that everybody hates and I hate it too. Biology. But Logan does, sorry, in Josh. fact... 
<laughs> Logan does, in fact, have the ability to regenerate from a skeleton and a drop of blood. If we're saying that Logan's power set originates from his blood type, and your blood type, of course, is part of the same genetic makeup that would affect your marrow, so your marrow would have special properties. If we're saying that everything unique about Logan sources from this biological element... Okay, yeah, all right. I, um... I think I like it more than he faces down Satan with a magic sword. I think I like it more than he just so happened to be in the right place at the right time and picked for the Weapon X project. Like, this really does fix a lot of things for me. So what's Sabretooth's blood type? Irrelevant. <laughs> well, I mean, it this doesn't really matter when you're works. in the dark pit of, of punishment. Yeah, I think his blood type is currently mud. Does anybody else think that Professor X is just, like, psychologically fucking with Sabretooth while he's in the no place? Like, not not out of malice, but just, like, because he's bored, because his Cerebro jumpsuit has allowed him to just, like, spread himself so thin. It's the argument that Nico keeps making about how, how much a part of the island is Professor X really. I actually have a horrifying counter thought that I've been assuming this whole time. The only mutants that get sent to, let's just call it hell, are, you know, into the pit, are mutants beyond saving. And if Sabretooth is the demarcation we're using as mutants beyond saving, and we're talking about a community that's purposely, I just, I assume that he's giving those mutants to Moira to experiment on. I, ass Moira's, I assume that Moira's at the bottom of the pit. <laughs> Yeah, like she has a lab down there. And I assume, like maybe even they're using Abyss as a network to keep her protect. Abyss being a mutant with the power to create doorways who is connected to Nightcrawler and his ability to access the Brimstone dimension. Who, if I'm not mistaken, was on the Chibi, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Abyss was on the Chibi map of Krakoa that came out a few months ago. Yeah, so I really think that there is something to be said about the possibility that they're just feeding babies to Moira for, you know, experimentation. Now, I thought the punishment and sentencing was linked. Didn't we hear, like, that it's secretly linked to feeding Krakoa? That, like, they owe Krakoa a debt of, like, two mutants a year or something like that? And Sabretooth was the first one? I thought it was specifically psychic mutants. And then wasn't there that whole thing where they're feeding like a portion of every mutant to Krakoa? Yeah. They're feeding a portion yeah, they... of, of like like the psychics. Like he's draining them basically, but everybody does a little portion so that it doesn't feel as bad as like one person. Let me uh, insert me clapping of let me go on a rant. Dracula is doing bad stuff in this issue. And we have vampires, and we have the French vampire slayer that Wolverine, you know, kind of wanted to fuck in the catacombs of Paris. All good and well, and we'll see if she returns. Fuck all of that. Where is my Elsa Bloodstone? She has a history with Wolverine. She fights vampires. She's worked with and against Dracula. Where the fuck is Elsa in all of this? Thank you. I was actually just wondering that myself, so... That, that I was like, wait, why isn't Elsa in here? Like, like I, I know it's a bit that I want to put Elsa Bloodstone in every single book that I absolutely can, even if it doesn't make any sense, and I will do any form of stretching to get her there. But it makes much more sense to not make a new character and to have Elsa Bloodstone help Wolverine. They're already connected, and she already knows Dracula. Like, it's really not that hard. We already had 
Cullen in Excalibur, so why can't she be here? And you have to wonder if maybe somebody protects her, like if somebody has her in their folder, and so perhaps Percy isn't allowed to use her. Is Cullen Bunn doing anything at Marvel right now? I don't think so. Like, when I'm trying to think of, like, where her, and I know she might have shown up in Teenies. I wasn't reading Teeny Strike Force, but I just kind of, like, want to think or imagine that Elsa Bloodstone is still out with, like, some of the Fearless Defenders people, uh, wherever they wound up after, you know, all of Cullen Bunn's stuff was done. That crew was so good. Like, she's definitely out and about and doing stuff, but as far as I'm aware, she hasn't been scheduled to be put in anything, Slash doesn't have anything new coming out. I could be wrong, because I haven't checked in a bit, so if I am wrong, please correct me. But, like, if somebody's just like, yeah, we'll get to her, no, give her character, give her screen time. Like, just besides that, that's just what I'm more banging pots and pans for, because I feel like she also wouldn't let this happen. She wouldn't let multiple towns in Canada, even if they are small, be completely overrun and destroyed by vampires. You know, and and I have to agree that Elsa Bloodstone is the obvious choice to fill the Louise role, or rather Louise is filling the Elsa Bloodstone-shaped hole in the Wolverine story for me, and I was very surprised to see that white page pop up because for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was Chango or it was Josh, Josh could obviously corroborate because he's here, somebody in uh, one of our previous episodes brought up the fact that Wolverine is playing out like a western, and I'm starting to disagree with this format because it feels like if you take the hyper-violence out of any Wolverine title. Ultimately, what you have is a man fulfilling the narrative of a Western film. He's the loner. He is in some degree of forbidden or unrequited love with someone, and he is constantly haunted by by visions or, or demons from the past. I don't know that this is the Wolverine story that I need to be reading right now, and I think that it, it detracts from his role in most other books to see him pop up in what we'll be discussing next episode in Empire in what looked like a future Foundation suit it this Western solo narrative makes it very difficult for me to believably follow Wolverine in the pages of all other books other than X-Force and even sometimes X-Force now to be fair Marvel's been doing that with the Wolverine solo title compared to whatever the hell else is going on with the Marvel Universe for like 30 some years Oh, I don't I don't particularly think this is this is a novel concept, which is actually the the complaint. If anything, this feels like sans the hyperviolence. This feels like any or every Wolverine story in its basic beat to beat format. Yeah, I tend to agree. This goes back to, you know, Nico's opening to the show that like, hey, you know, for all of the, you know, diversity and everything we're getting in, you know, Dawn of X that like, look, our two solo titles are the white guys again that we always get Cable and Wolverine. Um, Cable and Wolverine as solo books, the only reason that I'm subbing to them and reading them, like, on the day they drop is because of Dawn of X as a line is so strong and so good. Otherwise, like, these would not be things I'm interested in. And I heard, I was listening to, um, one of the early Jay and Miles podcasts the other day, and they did a really good breakdown of, like, Wolverine versus Cyclops and kind of saying that Wolverine is most enjoyable when he has someone like Cyclops to play against, like he's an anti-authoritarian. And when he has like this straight edge authority figure that he can make fun of and play against, like that's when people love Wolverine. And it's why his solo stories have been so, you know, probably more of them less memorable than are memorable because, you know, just by himself, he's just this. And 
you know, like this was a better issue, I thought, than number four. But yeah, like there's just something overall that's kind of lacking, doesn't fit. I like the all mutants on team mutant concept of the world of Dawn of X and Krakoa. And this feels a little bit outside of it. I want it to be tied in more to that world in a way other than, oh, by the way, you know, Krakoa allowed Omega Red to run around. And so that's why he's here. And I do hope we get to see Punk Rock Vampire Princess again. Well, and I don't want to ever disagree with like, you know, Jay and Miles, who basically formed the idea of X-Men podcasts. But for my money, most of the most memorable Wolverine stories are by himself. For me, I think of Wolverine versus the Brood. I think of Wolverine versus the Hellfire Club. I think of, as much as I don't care for it, I think of Old Man Logan. When I think of Wolverine stories, I actually resist stories where Wolverine is the anti-authoritarian because as we covered in rereading it, he was horrible and awful and unlikable. And the majority of letters they received in the years where he was the anti-authoritative figure were get him out of this awful book. I think Wolverine thrives best when he is a man on a search for redemption, and when he is pitted against another good person, he immediately becomes a dickhead. As much as I never agree with almost anything Scott Summers does, Scott Summers is frequently making the right call, whereas Wolverine is an obstructionist. He likes to raise a claw and put it in someone's face and threaten them. Well, when one of your X-Men is currently tied to a stake and being burned at the top of a mountain... That is not the time to assert your masculine dominance against Scott. When you take out that combative authoritative figurehead, when you take out that need for him to remind you that he's got a big hairy dick, you suddenly get a character capable of empathy, sympathy, and development. And those are the things that make Wolverine for me. That's actually what I don't like about this story. This is Sad Panda Wolverine. I do not love Sad Panda Wolverine. But Sad Panda Wolverine became very popular around my precious Jason Aaron. Well, a step back, actually. Mark Millar really pushed the Sad Panda Wolverine narrative. I don't think Guggenheim helped too much. But really, the pinnacle of this, Wolverine is a monster, and we see the perspective of an everyman that he terrorized. And, oh, you know, Wolverine is a savage. Like, this whole Logan is always... And you know what? The worst example of it that I can come up with is Brian K. Vaughn and Edward Riso's three-issue Logan, which was essentially... Logan literally crying to a random woman about his social emotional impotence. I do definitely see what Jay and Miles are talking about, but it's such a microcosmic view of the bigger scope of what makes a team dynamic that it only works if you're isolating specific events and pointing to them and saying, yes, that was a good time he was an obstructionist. Because for the most part, Wolverine only works when he is in the leadership position in some capacity. So I've been pretty clear that I haven't really been a fan of Wolverine uh, since the beginning of this run, but I actually kind of enjoyed this one. Um, I, I can't really explain it. It just felt more fun, and the story felt like it definitely felt better than the last issue. Um, and I think a part of it was also that every time the the lady vampire showed up, I kept thinking that it was uh, Star Wars: The Clone Wars, Asajj Ventress. So <laughs> love it, love it, love it. <laughs> so that might have done it a little bit, but yeah, I I I kind of now want to see where things go whereas last week i was like eh, i'm not really interested so well then i have a question for you kyle and someone here josh are you an omega red fan by any chance 
I think he's a cool look, but I mean, the character has nothing. Like, there's not. Yeah. That was literally about to be my question. Like, Kyle, that must be what's making this a little bit easier for you. No one's trying to make us care about Omega Red. No one's trying to make us sympathize with him. He's not suddenly in love with someone can't be with her. Like, this isn't some secret evolution of the character of Omega Red. He's just a bad guy. Yeah, I really don't care about Omega Red. Um, I think I just really enjoyed the vampire story. We need we need Ackerman to do an issue where Omega Red falls in love with a Starbucks barista and Glob has to help him uh, with dating advice. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, Krakow and Love Connection is my new favorite show. I feel like he'd fall more in love with an octopus. Now, if it's an octopus, Claremont would have to be writing that one. Well, because the tentacle arms. And it makes so much sense that we started this conversation all the way back to the beginning of the episode with a discussion about how frequently renaming is about recrafting an identity onto someone else. Making Laura Wolverine gave the Wolverine entity new life. Making Rachel Phoenix gave the Phoenix entity new life. Making Cable Cable, huh? So Cable gets to be redefined as a different kind of Cable. But, you know, I actually think it's kind of a lot of the same stories, but it might even work better here. Maddie, I think you've got the details on the most recent issue of Cable. And with the casual loop that we're stuck in, this is again Cable number four with writer Jerry Dugan, artist Phil Noto, letterer VCs Joe Sabino, with design by Tom Muller, and cover art by Phil Noto. It's the end of the world as they know it. The cyborg space knights of Galador have retrieved the light of Galador from Cable and Esme, still having been abducted from a quiet neighborhood in Philadelphia. It's time for Cable to time travel them home as promised, but there are other plans afoot thanks to some last minute thinking from Old Man Cable, plus a little bit more from the X-Desks regarding the cult, the Order of X. I was surprised to see this arc wrap so quickly. I was surprised to see the Space Knights of Galador enter this arc at all. I really thought we were getting a baby napping story with Cable and one-fifth of his girlfriends, but we we got a little bit of origin for the Light of Galador, which makes me wonder a few things. It makes me wonder if the Light of Galador is going to be one of the swords in Ten of Swords, which would be much like including the Cerebro sword, ultimately confusing and a little contrived. But I think these four issues were really just meant to establish the new character of young cable which again nothing profound uh the realization not the characterization the characterization was actually handled uh very well in my opinion and i think a lot of that had to do with the flashback interactions with old man cable i think that specific voice and charm came across so identifiably well in old man cable that it echoed in the voice of young cable for these last four issues Hearing him say, all right, time to die. You know, there was, there's something so, you know, unironically John McClane about it that you, we still see a ripple of in Cable in, in the way that they eventually establish a door and dupe the Space Knights of Galador in the very end. And, you know, I love that you brought up so much classic stuff because I feel like a lot of this book is meant to look like a 1980s high neon action adventure. And, you know, Noto really plays into that with the gorgeousness of his art. But one of the things that I can't help but notice is the hyper use of the term Space Knights is, for me, in many ways, the most fascinating thing about this book. And as much as I love me some Cable, and y'all know how much I love me some Cable, I don't know if everybody realizes that Space Knights actually is a form of the title Rom the Space Knight. And Rom the Sp- 
Oh yeah, Rom the Space Knight, originally a Parker Brothers toy, later a Hasbro toy, was a Marvel comic from the end of 1979 to, well, when I came into this world, February 86, and it was predominantly by Bill Mantlo. Uh, In 2015, IDW picked up the rights, there's going to supposedly be a film, but what I can't get over is Marvel lost the rights to this character, and I, I don't quite understand how he's able to how they're able to use space knights as an entity when space knights is proprietarily owned by another company right now and i mean it's the same fucking font like there's no confusing this so this is clearly something bigger afoot well we're no stranger to rom the space knight and him fighting was it the the gas the whites the dire rates. The dire rates. I was close to the kind of ghosts that they are. Right. That was, oof, that was rough. What I want to echo the sentiment of this issue is that I think the good parts of Cable Number 4 came in the smaller detail stuff as opposed to the more action of what's happening in the now. It was over in a blink and she's not even in this issue and i was just really underwhelmed because it felt like it was nothing it felt like it was just a way for younger cable to think about his older self but it really felt like everything else had nothing to do with anything if it was going to be resolved that quickly and easily uh i was still trying to figure out more about the order of x and i think that's still potentially more interesting so i'm still on board for what's going to happen but the past two issues just kind of felt a little too slow for me so cable number four really helped me understand what this book is it and and so i'm gonna start a little different say it reminded me in a sense of fruitvale station uh the um michael b jordan film where the first time I watched, well, the only time I watched Fruitvale Station, like, it was such a great portrayal of a teenage boy because they didn't try to, like, he was irrational and it, like, captured it, nailed, like, this is a teenager. And I watched it with a group of teenage boys as a high school teacher. They were playing it where I worked. And, um, and like, they all fully related. Like, they saw that character and was like, that's us. That's what this cable is. Like, to me... Dugan is doing a great job of writing a teenage boy and, like, nailing, like, the, uh, like, teenage boys are stupid in the exact way they are. And I think that this is actually the book that's kind of, like, the X-book for teenagers. Like, I feel like this is the type of book that, like, a teenage boy would read and be able to relate to Teen Cable in his imperfections and admire Teen Cable for dating all five identical twin cuckoos and think it's so cool that he has a big sword and is blowing up space knights it just means that it's not like for me it wasn't written for like a 36 year old guy who like when i open up a comic book want to forget about teenagers because i work with them all day having said that like i still get my money's worth because phil noto's art is so so beautiful and um, so so fucking beautiful because i would pay more than four dollars for any book that has emma on a horse doing the meet the fuckers i'm watching you finger eyes thing um that and the dinner's family dinner scene at the end those for me like that's everything i want from this book so if you just give me like quick tags at the end of whatever other story you're doing i'll be happy every month 
And I feel like that family narrative definitely hit what a lot of us were looking for from this book. Did anybody, was anybody like, yes, finally, Cable family? I was. This book, to me, it really felt like it was about Cable's relationships with people. His relationship with his older self. We we finally got a little bit of more closure on when he murdered himself. And, wow, that sounds so weird. And why old man Cable actually allowed it to happen. Happen. And we get to see his relationship with uh, with his family and with Emma, where she doesn't really trust him. Um, so it, it kind of, I don't know, it kind of made me feel good seeing all of that. We get a beautiful Emma look, and she's the equestrian of our dreams, uh, doing, I don't know what the motion is called, but like every, like, like the, my eyes are watching, like I'm watching you, that motion, it was uh, just utter perfection. And, like, I kind of missed the, like, the family, the Scott's family, the Summers family moment of, um, you know, Scott and Jean being parents to Rachel and Nate, and I thought it would have been, like, more involved in X-Men, because we only really got it in, like, the first couple of issues, but now we get it again in Cable, and it's like, oh, this is cute, we like family stuff. everybody, I'm Nico. I'm Kevo. And you might be a little bit confused what an HTML break-in is doing in the middle of an episode of Excess for Podcast. Well, this episode we started discussing Rom the Space Knight. I love that name. Oh, it only gets better. Now, Rom the Space Knight was a toy product designed in the late 70s for Marvel to help launch, kind of like a Dazzler sort of deal. The way G.I. Joe would have tie-in comics, it was very common for toys and comics to go hand-in-hand. It was, and it was also very common for those to not necessarily work out very well. Unfortunately that is the heart of what happened here. Now I was confused how the X-Men were permitted to use the Space Knights of Galador in the pages of X-Men and I even commented in the episode, oh it's the same fucking font, what's happening? And I realized I didn't know enough about this topic so I went ahead and did a little bit of research and sure enough it led me to some quotes from James Gunn about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Hence the break in, like mission break out. Oh absolutely only to do this we don't need to tear down a beloved attraction so it turns out James Gunn is a big Rom the Space Knight fan and this is despite Time Magazine referring to the toy as one that would end up among the dust balls under the playroom sofa yikes Time Magazine that's pretty heavy yeah truly now the book ran 75 issues ending in 1986 and IDW had a revival or still has a revival with some pretty big names attached it's very exciting but here's why James Gunn decided not to use the character. This is the problem. Rom, the story, is owned by Marvel Comics. So the Dire Wraiths, you know, all that story is owned by Marvel Comics. For those who don't remember, the Dire Wraiths are a concept from Rom that Chris Claremont would go on to use extensively in The Fall of the Mutants alongside Forge and that very large storyline of mystical sacrifice, right? But Gunn continues, the character of Rom and the toys are owned by Paramount. So you can't have both. 
So basically, you can do Space Knights at Marvel as long as you never address Rom or show him with his helmet on, but you can use the Space Knights. However, IDW can use all of it. So it's like that thing with Neil Gaiman and Angela. Yeah, it's kind of like the Angela thing where he created Angela for Spawn and then Todd McFarlane did him pretty dirty, so he got to take Angela and gave it to Marvel, who I guess, you know, that was part of a whole big thing where we talked about Miracle Man, and that's another one where it's afterward the rights have moved somewhere else, but it maybe gets a little bit more amusing because since Marvel doesn't own the rights to Rom, he actually can't appear as Armored Rom, which by the way, Sal Buscema really enjoyed working on the title because it was really easy to draw, right? So there's been cute little things like Rick Jones has a Rom helmet toaster, (laughs) but they've also done some pretty interesting things where characters were redesigned into a five-issue miniseries known as Space Knights, which featured a main hero known as Prince Tristan, who would later be codenamed Liberator, which pretty sure when I think of Liberator, I think of the sex furniture company, but maybe that's just me, in a redesigned form of Rom's armor, and he fought alongside other Space Knights, which is pretty interesting. And, you know, I guess I hadn't realized how much the character had gone on to appear post-Rom, or at least his side characters. While true, Rom has only made two appearances since Rom 75 in 1986 in the pages of Incredible Hulk 418 and Space Knights number one, the Space Knights have gone on to appear in a number of John Hickman's works. So that's the guy that's heading the X office. I guess it only makes sense that that would happen. But here's where I my shock came in. Several appearances by Rom have been outright omitted, according to Wikipedia. Power Man and Iron Fist 73, which featured Rom, was omitted from Essential Power Man and Iron Fist, and similarly, Marvel 2 and 199 was omitted from Essential Marvel 2 and 1 Volume 4, while the Incredible Hulk Regression Trade Paperback features a heavily edited version of Hulk 296, removing Rom's entire appearance in the issue. Furthermore, Rom 72, which was a tie-in to the Secret Wars 2 series, was omitted from the Secret Wars 2 omnibus. Wow, so it's like Rom got thanos Truly! And And I can't even imagine for a moment that Marvel would be permitted to make a character part of a film if they don't have the rights to produce the toy that goes along with it, because that is very not in Marvel's wheelhouse perception. Oh, completely. Why even bother making a movie at all? Now, just to cover a handful of what actually turns out to be a significant number of appearances, after ROM 75, the Space Knights, all one word, lowercase k, to distinguish it from other editions, would appear in Space Knights. 1 through 5 in 2000. They would go on to appear in Annihilation number 5, Annihilation Conquest Prologue. They would make two appearances in two different volumes of Nova, as well as appearing throughout the Annihilation Conquest, Thanos Imperative, Annihilators, and Avengers by Hickman stories. Eventually, they would go on to appear in Guardians of Infinity in 2016, published in May. So it's just sort of almost startling how incredible the journey for these characters have been. Absolutely. Now, I don't think there's too much more to say about the Knights of Galador as they relate to the Space Knights originally, but it is interesting to see that Marvel is trying so hard to rectify and bring together all of the different facets of the X-Men in the pages of House of X. I'm excited to see where it goes, and Kevo, I guess in a lot of ways, this goes on that list of things in HTML, like the way Adam Warlock was possibly going to appear in the second Guardians of the Galaxy. 
And we do love those behind the scenes trivia tidbits like that. It makes me wonder if there's this push to bring the Space Knights back in, if perhaps we will get Space Knights of some kind, maybe even supporting Carol in Captain Marvel 2. This would be an excellent way to bring them back into the cultural vernacular in a way that would get fans primed for it. And with everything that's going on with both Disney and Marvel as companies, there are so many avenues they could explore with characters like that, whether it is in a major motion picture or somewhere on Disney+. Plus. Kevin, thank you so much for coming out. I wanted to do the HTML treatment on the Space Knights, and I couldn't do it without you. Anytime. As always, you can find us over on HTML, as well as Too Fast, Too Forever, all somewhere along. But Kevo, where can everybody find you when you're not around here? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. Today covering Wolverine and Cable, the two residents who seem to gotten their solo issues, but not much is really happening. Wolverine seems to be missing crucial players that we think would add to the story, but it doesn't really seem like the story itself is engaging enough. Cable is starting to get its foot and trying to hit the ground running. I think it uh, hit a couple of hurdles in trying to tell its narrative, slowing down a little too much with the Space Knights, but I do imagine that when we do get to the Order of X and the baby napping, which was the whole point of Cable number one, I think it'll be much more interesting and much more engaging. And speaking of interesting and engaging, I just want to thank Josh. I want to thank you so much for coming out again and for bringing your wealth of knowledge and your one-of-a-kind perspective. And uh, tell us, where can everybody find you again? And tell us a little bit more about your site. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, A-S-L-E-E-P-A-T-W-E-I-L, Asleep at the W-E-I-L. I, you know how to spell the other words. And my website is Asleep at the Wheel, Asleep at the W-E-I-L.com. Got back issue recaps, uh, like in-depth back issue recaps for X titles. It's got uh, review videos of trade paperbacks and hardcovers. I've got a pretty decent wealth of X fan-made XTs on there now that you can check out with links to the creators. A couple even from uh, our boy Juan, aka Chango ATX. Um, and I got a new feature I'm working on, which are easy-to-load back issue galleries for volumes. X Factor Volume One is up right now. It's got all 149 issues with the covers and uh, short, spoiler-filled blurbs to help you remember what happened in each one. Well, then I hope everybody is checking that out because that makes life and especially things like doing research for this show a whole lot easier. And speaking of this show, Kyle, where can everybody find you online until we come back to talk about the rest of this week's books? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Maddie, where can everybody find you? Well, you can find me having my blood stolen on Instagram at at the basely covetous man. And since we're all spelling it today, that's at T-H-E. E-B-A-S-E-L-Y-C-O-V-E-T-O-U-S-M-A-N and J-O-N-A-H. Where can everybody find you? You can find me drinking moose smoothies over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML, Too Fast, Too Forever, as well as all the feeds of this motherfucker right here. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's, should I spell it? It seems like everybody's spelling these days. Fine, I'll do it. Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And guys, it should go without saying, but just in case somebody in the back needs to hear it one more fucking time. 
Black lives matter, trans dreams matter, and you have to vote like your weakest friend's life depends on it because in this election cycle, it very well might. Make sure your news is coming from unbiased sources, and if you're going to lean toward a bias, make sure you are keeping people alive with that bias. Ladies and gentlemen, until we return to the vaunted halls of Krakoa to mutant some more mania, ladies and gentlemen, keep it real, keep those gateways open, and we'll see ya. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Deuces.